what's the old phrase? It's like a drunk uses a lamp post. He doesn't use it for illumination. He uses it for support. You're going into this fight not to learn anything, but just so that you can yell at the other guy, then go back to your team and say, hey, look what I did. Look how bad I owned them. I think that's kind of poisonous to our politics. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Jeremiah Johnson, founder of the Center for New Liberalism. Jeremiah's story is different in some regards from others I've talked to in the area of progressive political entrepreneurship. For one, his group has its roots as a subreddit called Bad Economics, where he gathered like-minded people who support a pragmatic, pro-capitalist, and more centrist strain in the Democratic Party. Jeremiah has learned a lot about what it takes to cultivate a different kind of audience, both in where they are located ideologically and online. And by joining it with an existing entity in the space, he's worked to institutionalize his community. Jeremiah is a good guest. You should listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Jeremiah Johnson of the Center for New Liberalism. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Jeremiah, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. So my name is Jeremiah Johnson. I am the founder of the Center for New Liberalism, along with uh, my co-founder, Colin Mortimer. The Center for New Liberalism is basically a organizing group and a think tank and, and a couple other things all rolled into one digital advocacy group. I founded the Center for New Liberalism as kind of a, a way to make a difference in American politics and fight back against what I saw as extremism that was kind of creeping into both sides of American politics, frankly. I also write a lot and podcast a lot. I host the New Liberal Podcast. I write at Infinite Scroll on Substack. That's the one-minute version of the biography. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and what kind of family and how politics became important to you. I grew up in the suburbs of Atlanta and had a pretty unremarkable childhood, I'd say. Typical suburban kid, uh, grew up in Georgia, went to high school in Georgia, went to university in Georgia, went to graduate school in Georgia. I live in New York now because I decided 25 years of being in Georgia was enough for me. And work took me up here and I live in New York now. But growing up, it's interesting because I would not have always called myself a liberal. I was a teenage libertarian in the sense that a lot of people are. And 
I read some libertarian philosophy and some libertarian material as a teenager and fell deeply, deeply into that and was very convinced that was the way to go with politics. I've always loved discussing politics and I've always been very online, even all the way back to like middle school, trying to get into AIM chat rooms and message boards back back when the internet was like message boards and, and chat rooms to talk to people about politics. I actually really still value that a lot. I, I would not call myself a libertarian anymore, but I still keep certain libertarian leanings and I think those are valuable. Something that I say a lot is I, I think that the Republican Party would be better if it was a little bit more libertarian. And I think the Democratic Party would be better if it was a little bit more libertarian. And libertarians would be better off if they were a lot less libertarian. So <laughs> there's valuable nuggets that you can get from a lot of political philosophy. Who did you read up among the libertarians that, that you took to? I would say mostly Friedman and Hayek. And then just a lot of message board stuff in, in kind of the early days of the internet, a lot of like chat rooms and political blogs and things like that, kind of the early internet before social media proper existed. I, I never did read Ayn Rand. I tried to read Rand. Somebody gave me Rand and I thought before I even got to the philosophy of it that she was the worst writer I'd ever read. She couldn't craft a sentence to save her life. So I gave up on like the fountainhead three pages in said, I'm not dealing with this. I think it's interesting because I would not call myself a libertarian anymore. But the more you think about this stuff, the more you realize that there are little nuggets of truth and little things you can take from many different perspectives, if that makes sense. No single ideology really has the claim to like universal truth. And it's about finding what works and what circumstances. Which is a more pragmatic posture than anything else. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The Center for New Liberalism is associated with kind of a sister organization that's called the Progressive Policy Institute. And PPI is, is a longtime Washington think tank led by Will Marshall, who is one of the old guys who kind of shepherded Bill Clinton to the presidency like way back in the early 90s. And Will's favorite phrase is that he's a pragmatic progressive. You know, he's not an ideological progressive. He's a pragmatic progressive, and he will hammer that into your skull until it's also your favorite phrase. So I really love the word pragmatic, because I think it does encapsulate something we need more of in our politics. What did you study in Georgia at those various schools you went to? I was always kind of a math guy. And it's funny because now I am a full-time content guy. Now I talk and I write for a living. But I was always a math person in high school. I went to college and did economics in college, thought I was going to be doing an econ PhD, took all the requisite math classes that you have to take an enormous amount of math if you are setting yourself up for an econ PhD. So I got my econ bachelor's, took one class of economics grad school and decided, nope, that's not what I want to do, and uh, switched over to doing mathematical statistics. So I have a master's in stats I also thought about doing the PhD in stats, but decided I was you know, tired of being a poor grad student and uh, went into data science for a while. It's interesting. The first 10 years of my professional career, just me being a, a consultant and a data scientist, a data science gun for hire, so to speak. And that was my professional life. I still love talking about politics and I was always still kind of writing about stuff online. But I was just a professional data scientist, and this foray into politics has almost been by accident. 
But there's something quite useful about uh, a knowledge of statistics in just thinking. There are so many things that it brings to every conversation, I think, that maybe someone who isn't steeped in it doesn't have in terms of perspective. Do you agree? And what would you count in that if I'm right? Statistics is intensely pragmatic in a way that like something like calculus or trigonometry is not. Statistics is something where you're going to be presented with statistical claims all the time, whether it's at work, whether it's in the news, you know, you're going to hear, oh, there's this study that says that 60% of blah, blah, blah. And, you know, having a basic knowledge of statistics is going to help you interpret the news more accurately. It's going to help you know what questions to ask. Okay, well, what was the sample size? Okay, well, was there a bias in the sample they were drawing from? Statistics is really, really useful for interpreting the world. Or just the notion of compared to what? Or causality. Causal inference and really thinking deeply about the chains of cause and effect. And, you know, we can get deep into like wonky policy here. And, I, you know, I've done my share of diving into like research on the minimum wage and immigration and, you know, a lot of hot button topics. And if you really want to understand that stuff, you've got to read some of the literature. And really to read the literature, you just have to be able to understand statistics. It was much more fashionable when Bill Clinton was running for president to be thinking about what policies worked and why and being willing to consider the different types of models that might actually work in the real world if that seems to have come out of the thrown out of the window to some degree at least in a lot of the prominent campaigning but it sort of fits with where you were the idea that you might be swayed by evidence mm mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the the group that we founded is kind of from the beginning had tongue in cheek, like we are the evidence based people. You know, we're the people who like to set policy based on what actually works. Everybody will tell you that it's a little bit tongue in cheek because everybody says their policies will actually work. But, I, you know, you can have a strong commitment to that or you can have a weak commitment to that. And I do think there's been a move. I think you're correct here that there's been a move away from pragmatism and towards something more like purity. Or our ideology. Yeah, ideology, just that, you know, if, if this is an example from the 2020 primary, Elizabeth Warren running for president proposes a 6% wealth tax. And a lot of people come out and say, oh, this is a terrible idea. That's way too much. And, you know, the no country in the world has one that high. And Bernie Sanders, literally three days later, I remember this like it was yesterday, comes out with an 8% wealth tax. Not because of any reasoning, not because some model told him it was good, but just because it was two points higher than what Elizabeth Warren was doing. We probably don't know whether he went through any calculation or his team did, but it does seem plausible that he was not going to get outflanked on that. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's that was the primary concern is just, well, I am the leftmost candidate. I can't get outflanked. What's a number that's higher than six? I would be shocked if there was much more to it than that. So. What did you take from all those years in data science that's relevant to what you do today? I don't want to overplay this, but I do think that there's a value in an analytical approach that people are seeing more and more in politics. You know, partially this is the Nate silverization of political conversations that a lot of things that used to be based around vibes are 
now based around numbers. Who's going to win the presidential election is now something that we know you have to model with complicated models that go state by state and look at polling. And there's a science to this. Before Nate Silver, this was very much a vibes-based thing. You'd get some people on the ground in Iowa and they'd tell you how it felt. That was the state of political reporting for a long time. And I think that that's happened in a lot of areas. That's happened in policy and that's happened in, in how we think about like, how do you actually win a campaign? You know, the Obama campaign was famous for their use of analytics to kind of micro target different groups and turn them out. And I think that kind of analytical drive has been a long time coming in politics. I also think that it might have been overplayed in that humans are modelable, but also something of a chaotic system like a primary in Iowa. And you can't necessarily know that Dean and Gebhardt are going to shoot each other out in a primary and Kerry is going to show up at the last minute and win it. And Edwards is going to be right on his heels. You can look at the polling and you can make educated guesses or, or more scientific interpretations based on the numbers. But there also is something in policy and politics that sits outside of what is measurable because we are human and because we follow stories and because there's momentum. And, and it's the same thing with studying economics. That not everything is captured by a model. Well, it's funny you use the word model there because there's a, a couple of sayings that I love to emphasize here, which is that number one is it's a model, not the model. We are not perfectly modeling the world, but this is a simplistic version that helps us understand the world. Another saying that I've heard from economists is that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And again, we know that what we're modeling with our equations is not the perfect representation of reality, but we do know that within a certain bound of uncertainty or whatever, that this is going to be useful, that it will illuminate something for us, that, that will help us understand more. And so kind of knowing the limits of the models and knowing the usefulness of the model, what we cannot infer from it, what we're going to have to use something different for, that's part of the process. So with all this as background, what's the founding story for Center for New Liberalism? What were you doing that led to that? How did you come across Colin? How did this all come to fruition? So the founding story of the Center for New Liberalism is an interesting one because it was never intended to be an organization. It was never intended to be anything. During the 2016 primary and kind of going into 2017, there were a, a number of us uh, in social media spaces, primarily on Reddit, I'd say at the very beginning, who were looking for a place to talk about politics that was not we're going all the way with Bernie camp or the, the Trump MAGA insane direction that the Republican Party was going in. And if you remember being on the internet at that time, Bernie Sanders was kind of ascendant on most of Twitter and all of Reddit practically, except for the Donald subreddit, which was its own special brand of hell. And it really felt like there was no place for people who were, say, like Hillary Clinton supporters. Like it was weird in a sense that if you were a Hillary Clinton supporter, sometimes you would get more ire thrown at you than if you were a Trump supporter. From the left, I'm speaking kind of from a realm of like democratic politics where clearly more than half the country is supporting Hillary Clinton. She did win the primary. And yet, where is the space for this online? And so 
a bunch of us that existed on Reddit. We were in a subreddit called Bad Economics, which was a place where like econ grad students and a bunch of like wonks and nerds would gather to discuss different policy ideas and talk about economics, make fun of people who promoted bad economic ideas. We decided like, let's create just a fun little forum that we can use to talk about politics. And since all the Bernie Sanders people, if you admit that you don't like Bernie Sanders, they're going to call you a dirty neoliberal. Let's start a place called r slash neoliberal, the neoliberal subreddit as kind of a tongue in cheek joke. You know, if you call us neoliberals, fine, that's what we are. And that was the start of all of it. So that subreddit, the neoliberal subreddit, was originally kind of just a joke. It was a place where we were going to post memes about politics from our own point of view. And very, very quickly, it got a lot of attention and it got a lot of people joining. It had 10,000 people within the first couple weeks, I think. Can I ask you to stop on that for just a second and explain to people who aren't Reddit literate? I've obviously been on Reddit, Reddit, and but some people haven't. Reddit is basically a link aggregator. On It's the biggest link aggregator on the internet. You go to the front page of Reddit and people will submit links and upvote them. And it, it's one of the top 10 sites in the US, I think, by, by, by this point in terms of traffic. It's an absolutely enormous site. And the site is set up so that there are subreddits. You can go to the Reddit slash funny subreddit for jokes. You can go to the Reddit slash politics subreddit for politics. You can go to the Reddit slash birds with arms and, and get pictures of birds with arms. There's kind of a subreddit for everything. And it's free to set up your own subreddit. And so we set up one that was the neoliberal subreddit, because if you were a Democrat, but you didn't like Bernie Sanders, you were called a, a dirty neoliberal who was stopping the revolution with your counter-revolutionary neoliberal impulses. It just grew really, really fast. And we got lots and lots of people participating. And so we set up a Slack channel with all of us. Let's start a Twitter account. Let's start a podcast. And all of these things kind of grew much, much faster than we ever expected. We started posting on Twitter. And that was uh, Colin and I and, and one or two other people controlling the Twitter account. And we got a bunch of actually important people following us. Members of Congress started to follow us, which was very odd the first time that happens. We started a podcast and we started getting members of Congress and like important academics and people coming on the podcast. Tell me about a few of those. Who were they? Are they sort of members that you would expect? Blue dog or moderate type members? Or are they more curious across the spectrum? Uh, it's mostly, yeah, members of either the Blue Dogs or the New Dems. Um, the New Dems are one of the larger caucuses in in the House. Um, we've had uh, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists. We've had Nobel Prize winning economists on the New Liberal podcast. And so we set up the podcast and we set up all these places and they start just, they keep getting a ton of attention is the story, basically. The subreddit keeps growing to the point where it has hundreds of thousands of people in it. The The Twitter account has close to 100,000 followers. The the podcast is growing and people start to actually form meetup groups. Oh, hey, there's a bunch of us who are in New York. Let's start meeting up. There's a bunch of us in San Francisco. Let's start meeting up. And I think what we realized at some point was that there's actually a lot of energy here and we need to make something out of this. And we're filling a hole that is not being represented in American politics. People are kind of hungry for a technocratic center-left organizing group that represents a certain point of view. 
And so Colin and I thought we need to turn this into an actual organization. And that kind of is the birthplace of the the Center for New Liberalism. Tell me about Colin. What's his background and how how come the two of you were compatible to do this? Colin and I essentially just met by accident. We were both very early users and kind of the moderators of the spaces that we're talking about here. Colin was a student at the University of Connecticut when we started. He's about 10 years younger than I am. And so he had to graduate college before we could actually get this off the ground. But he is my co-founder and now lives in D.C. and runs the organization full time, kind of handles the day to day of dealing with our chapters as the organization has grown. And it's an actual 501c4 organization now that does a ton of advocacy and a ton of organizing. There's a lot of day-to-day work involved here. A lot of it is managing our chapters. Those meetup groups that I mentioned just a minute ago, those kind of evolved into being chapters all around the country. We have local chapters in many different cities. I think at this point, we're in 60 to 70 different cities across the country. I couldn't tell you the exact number because it's it seems like it's growing all the time. But so a lot of the work is helping those chapters learn how to organize, learn how to advocate for stuff at their local community board meetings, going to city councils, you know, knocking on doors for congressional candidates, things like that. That's what Colin's been doing the last few years. There's something very uh, current about an organization generating in this way, generating online through Reddit or Twitter or something like that, kind of testing a proposition intellectually or promoting itself in a niche that gets followed or not followed a lot according to whether there's a demand and then moving kind of to a bricks and mortar sort of model or more so, right? Or outside of just the original starting group to an organization that might be incorporated, might be a nonprofit, might have employees, might associate itself with existing organizations. It's very in line with our our philosophy. We are kind of the center left organizing group. I think we're the largest, by some distance, the largest center left organizing group in the country. And we are the Democrats who are proud to call ourselves capitalists, who believe in the power of markets. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we are against the, the, the social welfare state. I think that it's kind of a false dichotomy to say you have to either believe in the, the social welfare state or believe in capitalism, but you can't believe in both. I think they actually reinforce each other very well if you do it correctly. But there's something very capitalist about kind of just saying there's a need that's being unmet by the political market and we're going to step in and just kind of organically fill that hole because there's a demand. I think you use the word demand. There's a demand for this kind of thing, so we're going to supply it. It fits our ideological niche very well. I think there's a theory, a political theory out there that the demand, the intensity of demand is not in the middle as maybe some people would place you, but it's on the wings. And there certainly is a sort of notion of like the base of the Democratic Party being to the left, the base of the Republican Party being to the right. But it's not clear that there aren't more people in the center left and center right. 
do you have a sense of what you've put together has an indication about popularity of your ideas or might you choose like almost any area and be able to assemble a couple hundred thousand people. So this doesn't say much. Yeah. I'm going to try not to fall into the pundits fallacy here, which is all of my ideas are very popular. And the only reason that my party is not winning is that they don't do all of my ideas, which the people would love. That's every pundit's favorite thing is just to say, you will become more popular if you do all the things I recommend that I like. And that's, you know, that's not always true. Some of some things are popular and bad. Some things are unpopular and good. And you have to live with that sometimes. And some things are introduced and disliked and then adopted and then appreciated over time. With that said, I do think that I, I think the story of American politics over the last decade is that the extremes uh, on you know the extreme left and the extreme right have both grown a lot. And I, I don't think they have a majority of American politics, but I do think that they have more power than they used to. And I think a lot of this has to do with kind of the social media dynamics and, and the new wave of communications technology that we're living with now. I think social media kind of structurally by its nature tends to make things more extreme and tends to promote more extreme views. They're more viral. They get more clicks. But the views that you're putting forward seem to also have an attractive force to a subset. I mean, I think that there's a lot of people who would like to understand how you made the kind of place on the spectrum that you represent something that people wanted to gravitate to rather than sort of a default that people feel kind of ashamed to kind of be an old school practitioner of or thinker of and the activity is out on the wings. Yeah. So this is a really interesting question. And it's something I've thought about a lot over the last few years. You know, how did we capture a wave and do this in terms of like people really, really like us? This is something that has been attempted before. You know, there have always been moderate politicians and everybody's always wanted to know, well, how do we get young people interested in moderate politics? And there have been efforts to do this before, but they've usually been very like astroturfed it's coming from some organization headquartered in Washington, D.C., and they'll find some bright young kids straight out of college and they'll hire this kid to run a youth organization. But like it's, it's not authentic. It wasn't actually something that people out there on the ground were demanding. And usually these things embarrassingly flop. And so how do we get people to like center left or centrist politics? That's been a question for a long time. There's a couple things that helped us. The first thing is just that we were digital natives. We didn't start this with the intention of we need to create an ideological group and promote loyalty to it. We just started it with let's create something fun. Let's have a place that we would want to be and let's post a bunch of fun stuff. And naturally that gathered people to it. But I think the second thing that I would say, my theory about politics, and stick with me here for a second, is that all politics is identity politics. And identity politics is usually used in kind of a derogatory way. Oh, well, if you're black, then you care about Black Lives Matter. If you're a woman, then you care about abortion rights or whatever. And that's identity politics. And people normally kind of dismiss that. But I think that identities drive a lot of what we do. And identities can even be ideological. Look at what Donald Trump does when he's at like a rally in rural Iowa and look at all those people wearing red hats and shouting his slogans and tell me that's not an identity. 
that's not people who have some abstract belief in the principles that Donald Trump is talking about because he's he's incoherent most of the time. That's people who identify with him, who thinks that guy is one of us and this is who I am. This is very much in, in the sense that like a religion is who you I am a Catholic or I am a Muslim. I am a Donald Trump supporter. You can look at this in Twitter spaces. If you have a red rose emoji by your handle, that means you're a socialist. If you have a red cap, that means you're a Trump supporter. And all of these things are like identity markers. And I think what people really want is something that they can identify with. It's not enough to give them an idea. It's not enough to say, well, here's you know a tax plan that you should support. What you have to do first is you have to give them a group identification that they will strongly identify with, and then you win them on everything else. A gun owner is an identity in America. It's not an abstract policy. It's who that person is. And if you look at gun politics, that's absolutely how gun politics works is just they identify as being gun owners. And I think that's a lot stronger than kind of the abstract policy lever and what we've done kind of self-consciously is create that center-left identity with all the identity markers that you would need. We have our holy figures, our politicians, our saint figures. We have our sacred texts, the books that we think are the best policy books. We have our symbols, the globe emoji, and the, we have our inside jokes that nobody else gets. That's all stuff that you need if you really want to create kind of a movement that will last. It can't just be something that people agree with. It has to be something people identify with. And so that's kind of a long answer, but I really think that you have to get people to say not just I agree with that person, but I am one of them. And that's what kind of creates a lasting movement. Who would you say are these holy figures? Uh, for us? Yeah. Well, it's funny at the very beginning we started as like very technocratic economic kind of nerds. And so at the very beginning, it was uh, central bankers. It was talking about Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen and Jay Powell and how these were like the holy figures. If you go back to the early days, there's a lot of like Janet Yellen with laser eyes memes. And I actually think that people have become a lot more aware of kind of the power of the Fed and central bankers since we've been doing that. A lot of people have started talking about how Jay Powell has done an incredible job you know, bringing down inflation without leading us into a recession. Now I would think that we we start looking at more politicians these days. We look towards a new pragmatic brand of Democrat, someone like Jared Polis in Colorado, someone like Mary Peltola in Alaska, Michael Bennett. We could kind of run through the list, but there's this kind of very wonkish, technocratically inclined kind of Democrat who, who knows how to do good policy, who knows how to get things done without having to make like extreme ideological statements, who's more about results than they are about purity tests. Those are the people that we tend to promote and that we tend to go really hard for. And we're always telling jokes about God Emperor Jared Polis or whatever, whatever the case may be. How about texts? You mentioned texts that you that are reference points for you, what would you include in that? I don't think there's a centrally agreed upon list, but it's an interesting question. Certainly, there's some pro-immigration books that would be very highly up there. Our group tends to be very, very pro-immigration, 
pro-trade, kind of pro-internationalism. Globalist sometimes gets thrown around as an insult, but we're very happy to call ourselves globalists. Whenever there are economists talking about the positives from immigration, you tend to find us there. On the right-leaning side, you could talk about works from Friedman, like Capitalism and Freedom, Hayek's The Road to Serfdom. That would be kind of the, the right-leaning influence on us. On the left-leaning side, you could talk about the work of economists like Darren Asimolu, who wrote Why Nations Fail and talks about the importance of institutions. Those are some of the books that come to mind. We try to draw from, I think, both right-leaning thinkers and left-leaning thinkers to kind of find the pragmatic stuff that works. If the sort of popular reporting and sort of feeling that comes out of campuses these days is correct. The energy is pretty firmly on the left with a different viewpoint than you're coming from. What do you think is the current state of the debate among young people between center left and left? I would almost say that there's not a debate. The current state of discourse is that everyone sits within their own camps and their own kind of cloistered bubbles online, their own kind of filter bubbles, and they sit around and grow more extreme because of the dynamics of social media. And I mean, you'll find people fighting. If you go into online spaces, you'll find people yelling at each other. But what's really happening here is not so much a debate as much as, well, there's a group of people in, say, the far left camp, and there's a group of people in the center left camp. There's a group of people in the MAGA camp, the far right. I, I would say there's a group of people in the center right, but I'm genuinely not sure the center right exists. In I think America. there's a pretty thin group there. There's a tiny group of people hanging on to supposedly be the center right. Most of them have either just converted into being center left or gone, gone full Trump. But these groups, they really exist within their own bubbles. They kind of have their own news outlets each. They only talk to each other. They see their own tweets and they boost them. It's worrying to me that we kind of have these separate realities to some extent where, you know, you leave your reality and you get into a fight with the other guy. What's the old phrase? It's like a drunk uses a lamppost. He doesn't use it for illumination. He uses it for support. You're going into this fight not to learn anything, but just so that you can yell at the other guy, then go back to your team and say, hey, look what I did. Look how bad I owned them. I think that's kind of poisonous to our politics. Overall, I would agree with you that in terms of the Democratic Party, the Sanders wing has been growing in influence. And, and the, the amount of Democrats who would call themselves socialist, for instance, has gone up over time. And I'm worried by that. I'm not someone who wants the Democratic Party to be socialist. And so I'm trying to organize for center-left candidates. That's what our organization does. I'm trying to drag the Democratic Party back from the edge and make sure they're focused on pragmatically getting things done rather than engaging in what I think are crazy purity tests that are only going to matter to 5 to 10% of Americans. The reason I think that's important is that these are the Democrats who actually build majorities, it's fine for AOC to exist, for instance, and represent her district. She's in a very, very heavily Democratic district. And if the people in her district want to elect somebody who is a socialist, so be it. That's democracy. But the Democratic Party will never build a majority in the House of Representatives by electing 300 AOCs. That will never happen. 
you rely on the new Democrats and the blue dogs and these moderate Democrats winning purple areas to kind of actually build a majority. And those are the people who are going to help you get things done. We've seen this happen. We had a very narrow majority in the House. We had a 50-50 Senate. We had Joe Biden. And yet with that very narrow majority, Joe Biden was able to pass multiple huge trillion dollar bills that actually really, really helped people in a time when they needed it. I think my perspective is a little bit different than yours in that, although there's quite an intersection in that I am very interested in the coalition against Trumpism, which seems to me has to include both wings of the Democratic Party and people who don't consider themselves in that, but don't think much of the former president. And one of the reasons I'm interviewing you and, and why I've talked to Simon Rosenberg or lots of people who are more in the middle, but who I, who I think highly of, as well as people who might be to my left, is that I think that's generally the more sane part of the electorate, that whole breadth, and that, that the critiques from the left of neoliberalism have a lot of validity and standing up for capitalism where it works, which is certainly in, in, in an entrepreneurial setup, is also important. And that we create better policy when we incorporate both the kind of the vision that sometimes comes from the left to tackle big problems and not be comfortable with a lot of the misery that's out there, as well as thinking about what actually works and testing it and being open to a range of policy models. Are you with me there or what's the difference? So I would say there's two elements to this. There, there's a politics element and then there's a policy element. The politics of it is if an individual district that is heavily, heavily Democratic wants to elect, you know, Ilan Omar or AOC, that's one district. That's fine. You know, that's democracy and people should vote for what they believe. And maybe those people even represent a pretty important perspective. Uh, and well, look, people should stand up for what they believe in. I'm not going to tell you to not do what you believe in. But from a strategic political sense, do you want AOC's brand to be the brand of the National Democratic Party? I think if we really care about defeating Trump, we have to recognize that is not a winning brand across the 50 states of the country. Well, I think we have to recognize that we have to incorporate a breadth of views in order to capture people who, who find her to be a very compelling political figure and representing something very important, as well as people who can get elected in more conservative districts or, or districts that are more center left. I mean, it, it's one thing to say that you have to incorporate a breadth of views, and that's what any coalition does. But at the end of the day, there are people right now asking for very specific policy stances, asking for Joe Biden to chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free or whatever. And like the, recognizing that that's not actually popular outside of a very niche part of America is important. And you are going to have to make a yes or no call on important policy stuff. Is Joe Biden going to be for Medicare for all? Is he going to be for this? Is he going to be for that as he runs into reelection? These are yes or no questions to some extent. And I think that the value of being seen as politically moderate is very, very important. 
One thing that people underrate is that Trump was seen as more moderate than Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. If you polled the electorate and they did this and asked, which candidate do you think is more moderate? People said Trump. And I think that's crazy, but that's how he was perceived because the Democrats have a problem nationally with being perceived as out of touch. And this is something that we have to address if we really care about the nuts and bolts of actually defeating this guy. We can't let the Democratic Party be seen as this is the party of the crazy people who want to do crazy stuff. And regardless of what you and I think about that, in the political sense, this is a a real problem that Democrats have. I think that's a complicated question. And I think people can peel off out of the party in the middle or uh, on the left or lots of places over current events. And, and clearly one of those is, is Palestine, Israel, Gaza, for sure. And, and that's going to be something that he has to contend with from multiple directions. But I, I want to ask you more about the development of your organization. Tell me about sort of the trajectory of its development. So you talked about starting to create various organizations after Reddit. What's the nitty gritty of building this up? So when we first decided to make it an organization, we're like, okay, we've got these very popular spaces on social media. A lot of people seem to be very, very into this. The subreddit gets like 15,000 comments a day. It's an enormously active place. We started going about the process of trying to set up our own 501c3. And at some point in that process, we ran into some folks from the Progressive Policy Institute who said, that's a pain in the ass, frankly. Uh, You shouldn't do that. What you should do is just come work for us. Run your organization as a project of the Progressive Policy Institute, as a project of PPI, and we'll pay your salaries and you'll just be part of us. And so that's how we started. Did you feel any resistance to that? As some, Sometimes people who kind of have built their own fiefdom are fairly reluctant to be absorbed into some existing organization, even if that might be in the, in the best interest of them and their group. I don't think we had a lot. No, I didn't think we had any resistance in that way because it removed a lot of things that we didn't want to have to do necessarily. And you getting know. paid a salary is not a bad thing. Getting paid a salary is not a bad thing. You know, we we were, did not have to be full-time fundraisers, which is, you know, the head of any organization, one of the most important things you have to do if you're a nonprofit is fundraise. And this kind of insulated us from that because now we were part of a much larger fundraising machine overall, and we could just focus on our work. So how has PPI been as a home? PPI has been fantastic. And I should say we are no longer part of PPI in the complicated regulatory game of DC think tanks and nonprofits. Some of them are 501c3s, which means you are educational and you do not do political work. And that's how we started out. This year, we moved into being a 501c4, which means that we can do actual political advocacy and we can endorse candidates. And I think that happened in in early 2023. So now we are part of New Democracy, which is kind of like a sister organization to PPI. A lot of places in DC kind of have their their 501c3 arm and their c4 arm that do different things. And so now the Center for New Liberalism is at home under New Democracy, which is a 501c4, but still kind of doing the same stuff it's always done in terms of teaching people to be organizers, 
advocating for the ideas that we believe in, whether that's the child tax credit, whether that's immigrant rights, free trade, voting rights, whatever the case may be. So what is the boundary between new democracy and Center for New Liberalism? What do they do? What do you do? I believe the technical way this would be described is that the Center for New Liberalism is a project of new democracy. New democracy is the parent organization. And so what does the parent do? Endorse candidates. I believe new democracy sometimes provides campaign funds. They give donations. But CNL, the Center for New Liberalism, would be like by far the largest thing that new democracy does. It's probably the majority of new democracy at this point. You have to some extent already, but if you were going to characterize kind of the PPI new democracy place in American politics, what is that? I would say it's the the center left of the Democratic Party. If the Democrats have kind of a center left and a left, then we are the organizations promoting center left ideas, promoting center left politics, trying to elect center left Democrats. And this is what we do. I would say we align, for instance, very well with the new Dems in Congress, the the two big groups in the House of Representatives and the Democrats. There's the CPC, which is the Congressional Progressive Caucus. That's where a lot of the more left-leaning members are. That's where, you know, AOC and many of her friends would be the squad. And then there's the new Dems who tend to be more from swing districts and more from purple areas of the country. And the new Dems are more center-left. PPI and New Democracy and the Center for New Liberalism, all these organizations are more broadly aligned with the New Democrats and promoting ideas and providing them with the right ideas and and trying to make sure that their ideas are winning elections and gaining ground in policy. My own attitude is that we got to be on the same team, especially in this time. It gets my hackles up a little bit when I hear you refer to the squad in a deprecating way, even though there are things I disagree with that they stand for. And it also gets my hackles up when they or people on the left take too hard of a swing at more centrist Democrats and and call them, like you said, dirty neoliberals or the like. I don't want to see us squabbling among ourselves while somebody else comes in and burns the country down. Well, I I agree with that. And look, it's possible for me to overstate this because our organization was founded as a reaction to the left. And so we're always going to be like, we're going to be the Democrats who are not the left. We're the reasonable ones. And if you think about the members of Congress who are the more left-leaning, the progressive Democrats, they have been extremely cooperative and on board with the leadership in the House. I was about to make the same point that, look, we had a very, very tight majority in the first two years of Joe Biden's presidency, right? We had a 50-50 Senate where you had to have Bernie Sanders getting along with Joe Manchin. Nancy Pelosi, I think, had three or four seats as her majority in the House. And yet we got a lot of things passed. We didn't get all of Joe Biden's agenda passed, but we passed the IRA. We passed a huge infrastructure bill. We passed the child tax credit. There's a lot of good, a lot of good climate work. There's there's a lot to be proud of. That genuinely the most legislation that has been passed in a long time. I think the most impactful legislation since I don't know the 90s. Probably it's 
always going to be part of who we are to kind of play up our differences with the left. But of course, I'm very, very happy that we got all that done. Part of being pragmatic is that, yeah, you've got to work together and you've got to buckle down and get things done. And I fully support that. When all these things were being passed, you know, and, and the debates were being had, one of our focuses was always, we've got to pass something. We can't be exclusionary. We can't be my way or the highway. It's got to be, we've got to pass something and show the American people that a democratic Congress can actually get things done. And so that's, that's a focus for us as well. And, and you also said early in the, in this conversation where you sort of equated extremism on the left and the right. And I just think that is by and large, not a fair comparison. I think there's actual dangerous anti-democratic extremism on the right that you see it around the world and you see it here in this country and it's mushrooming. And on the left, we have people who are too passionately wanting everyone to have health care or too passionately wanting to make sure that minorities are not shot by police. And they see something through maybe through a single issue lens that doesn't fit well broadly, but are, all, are generally leading us in a direction of progress. I think we have a sick party right now on the right and and we have a healthy party in the Democrats. Well, yeah, there's two things I would say to that. The first is that you're absolutely correct that the Republicans have a much worse extremism problem than the Democrats. The, the extreme wing of the Republican Party is almost the whole party at this point. They're might be five Republicans left in Congress who are not wild extremists. I'm not going to bother to count. The wing that used to be the extremists was the Tea Party, and all the tea, all the old Tea Party guys look like moderates now. The Republican Party is genuinely dangerous to democracy. I 100% agree. So you're absolutely right. And look, I'm, I am someone who professionally is trying to elect Democrats in swing districts, so I'm very aware of the stakes here. With that said, though, I... I want to push back a little bit on the idea that, oh, these are just people who care too much. And they're, you know, even if they are, you know, a little bit too enthusiastic, they're still leading us in the right direction. There's a lot of instances where the left is not just overly enthusiastic, but actually wrong on the merits of what they're trying to do. You know, when in the wake of uh, the Black Lives Matter protests, when there was a bunch of people either chanting abolish the police or defund the police, those were terrible ideas. And defunding the police only led to a crime spike that actually hurts minority communities more because where crime is concentrated in our country is in minority communities. And so if you have, well, let's just not have police as your, as your guiding light of policy, that's going to screw over the people that you claim to be helping. And there, there's a lot of stuff like this. You know, all of our biggest cities in this country, all of them, 100% of them are 100% controlled by Democrats. These Democratic-led cities, I live in one of them, New York, they do not build housing, for instance. San Francisco refuses to build housing, and it's the most left-leaning city on this continent. New York will not build housing. And this is largely a blue state and a blue city problem by the most progressive Democrats you can find in the country. I find that a little confusing because cities don't build housing. I mean, they might... Uh, have policies. The amount of housing that is built in a city is absolutely a policy choice. The city can decide to have a certain amount of a certain type of zoning or not a certain type of zoning. They can demand a certain process. In San Francisco, there's the famous case where somebody is trying to 
tear down a laundromat and build housing, which San Francisco desperately needs. And the city tried to get the laundromat marked as a historic laundromat. The city did or somebody in the neighborhood did? Um, the, somebody in the neighborhood presented to the city council, I believe it took nine to 10 months for them to produce a report on whether or not the laundromat was historic or not. And they decided it was not in the end. And then they moved on to a complaint about how this building would cast a shadow on a park for three hours a day for three months out of the year. I can't argue with a specific case. The details may or may not be correct, but whatever the specifics of that particular San Francisco lunacy. There are, you know, real policy deficits that the progressive wing of the party has where their policies genuinely do hurt people. Or you disagree with them and these things need to be evaluated and tested by people who are not ideologues, who are interested in building better housing or policies that promote that as well as balancing other rights, like maybe people need laundromats, I don't know. And, and, and again, none of this is to say that progressives having a bad stance on whether or not, you know, we should fund police. That, that's not the same level of danger as Donald Trump trying to make himself an actual dictator. That's the most dangerous thing in politics. There but. also are, it seems to me, pretty valid critiques of some of the policies that were enacted by more conservative Democrats or, you know, national policies that might have gone under the rubric of neoliberal now, that can't be ignored. There were problems with the crime bill or there were problems with some of the aspects of free trade that were implemented by Bush and Clinton, that national policies from both parties did lead to more inequality. And that these are things that we have to be careful of that involve thinking from the whole swath of Democrats, left and middle. Absolutely. I would 100% agree that there have been ideas tried under the name of centrist Democrats or, or whatever the case may be that ended up not going very well. And I, I would hope that that's something that our movement is actually pretty good at is the idea that, well, we've got to try something. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. We try something else. We don't get stuck ideologically on this is the solution and you have to pledge fealty to that solution and that's the only solution you're ever allowed to have. You've got to be willing to kind of make changes and have a better sense of what works and what doesn't work rather than what will win you the most popularity in a stump speech to kind of the 5% most extreme people. Tell me a little bit about the now with Center for New Liberalism. What, what are your goals? What are you trying to make happen? Where are you taking things? For me, I am mostly focused on the content side these days. I, I write at my blog and I um, host the New Liberal podcast. And so I do a lot of writing and podcasting. Colin is running the organization day to day in terms of our chapters and our operations in D.C. For the next year, the big thing is obviously going to be the 2024 race. We want to make sure that Joe Biden is reelected. We want Democrats to win back control of the House. I would love if we could maintain control of the Senate. That seems to be a much more difficult ask. But basically, the 2024 election, we're mobilizing all of our chapters to kind of see if we can make a difference. Uh, ultimately, this is all about making a difference. This is about keeping Trump out of power. I think that the best way to do that is by having this kind of pragmatic message that can appeal to as many people in America as possible. 
that's what we're focused on. I'm kind of hopeful that you train your negative energy on the right because the the policy proposals and the changes in government that Trump and his people are being very open about are for some reason they're not getting a very serious going over by the press at least as far as I can tell there are some articles that kind of put it out there but there's a lot of really radical stuff coming that that could well be be governing us Trump is talking about deporting people on mass yes totally politicizing the c- civil service so that we're better off fighting it off fighting it off in this election than having to deal with it actually in power and and I'm sure we are totally on the same page there yeah no I mean I, I think you're right that it's um it, it's almost w- weird how the press is not covering a lot of this I think some of it is just because Trump is not on social media anymore or what they're covering is the ups and downs of his trials rather yeah. than than the what they see as boring or he's, uh, he's not participating in the debates, which strategically it's helping him that he's not on social media, that he's not participating in the debates because he's not in front of us. And we all know Trump has the quality that when he's in front of us, we can't help but talk about him. He can't help but dominate the conversation, right? And so I think it's actually been a huge benefit to him that he was banned from Twitter and now he's refusing to come back. Um, because if he was out there being crazy every day, somebody posted the two Christmas messages and Joe Biden said something like, I hope on this, you know, sacred day that you are with your family and you are, you know, reflecting on the meaning of the Christmas spirit and what this day means to all of us. And Donald Trump's message was something about, I am so persecuted, all caps. You know, this has never been done. The greatest injustice. These people are destroying our country. May they rot in hell. Also, Merry Christmas. You just look at the difference between those two things, and it, it's it's very clear that one of these people is insane, and not, I, I don't know, like or, or incredibly good at drawing attention. I, I but I think it's that was posted on Truth Social, where nobody but crazy Trump people are, and I think it really benefits him that he is only posting that on Truth Social. I don't know. I want to be respectful of your time. We've probably gone too long, but can you just say a thing or two about what you've learned about? digital advocacy and political entrepreneurship by this foray. What can you tell other people who might be interested in doing something analogous about what worked and what didn't? The two things I've learned the most, I would say, about kind of operating in these online spaces and doing digital work are, number one, the identity kind of spiel that that I give to people all the time. If you want to create something lasting, you have to have people identify with your movement rather than just think it's good. They have to think this is what I am rather than this is just something I think is good. And this is something I think the left has actually done a very good job of, even though I disagree with them on the policy. There's a lot of people now who would say, I am a member of the DSA. I am a socialist rather than just, oh, well, I think Bernie has some good ideas. So that's the first one. The second one I think would be you can't be afraid to iterate really, really fast. Just try things out in the online spaces. And if they don't work, they don't work. You can just abandon them. We've tried a number of things that didn't end up working as well as the things that did stick. We had a community publication where we kind of started our own little newspaper, online magazine, I guess. And we ran that for a year and it didn't didn't get a ton of traction, so we just dropped it. Whereas the podcast got a ton of traction and has millions of downloads now. And that's been a big success. 
don't be afraid to just try things. If you have an idea, just do it. And don't do it in some perfect state where it takes you six months to launch it. Just do things and see if they work and iterate very quickly. And that's the kind of lean startup capitalist model that is preached by Silicon Valley. And that is a business startup. Make a minimum viable product, put it out there, get feedback, iterate on it, improve it, find a need, and go to where there are customers. We tend to be very tech-friendly. We're the pro-capitalism Democrats, and part of our shtick is saying, well, let's let's harness the forces of capitalist growth. You know, Capitalism has, has made the world very, very rich over the past 200 years, and that's what we can use to fund all the stuff that we want, a social safety net that protects children and protects sick people and protects the elderly. All of that will be possible. Tech-friendliness and techno-optimism, in a sense, is kind of a little bit part of who we are. And I'm, I'm happy to lean into that. I'm really happy to have a chance to have you represent that viewpoint, which is an important one. Is there a question I should have asked you that I failed to? Potentially, you could have asked in, in more detail our policy range of stuff other than just we're centrists. Why don't you say a couple things that you'd love to see happen? I don't really like the word moderate or centrist very much. I use it because I, I don't feel like there's a better substitute. But sometimes the degree of moderate is like, well, I want what Bernie Sanders wants, but only 40% because I'm reasonable and I'm the moderate. And I, I think a better thing to do is to actually have a distinct vision of what society should look like. Because some of the things we believe are actually not super moderate. We are very, very pro-free trade. We're very pro-immigration. We're probably the single most pro-immigration group you will find in American politics. Some people accuse us of liking open borders, which I don't know if open borders is exactly where we'd go for, but we would definitely be increasing immigration by a lot. I would like to see kind of a, a smarter, more targeted welfare state that is both bigger, but also also more targeted. I would like it to be more aimed at, for instance, children. The child tax credit, I think, was a, a really, really important thing that it's a shame that it was allowed to expire because it cut child poverty by 50%. I, I would like us to focus the welfare state more on the truly vulnerable, like people living in, in very, very poor neighborhoods, like children, rather than on stuff like student debt forgiveness. Most student debt forgiveness dollars go to people who have college degrees who are going to be making a lot of money anyway. Those are a few of the things that I think we focus on. But the, the child tax credit is a big, big popular thing within our members. We're also partially just a membership-driven organization. Our members kind of dictate to some degree what our views are. How much uniformity do you think there is among people who consider themselves members? On some issues, a, a ton. Virtually all of our members are pro-trade, pro-immigration, liberal socially in terms of LGBT rights and things like that. That I think there would be a ton of... In conformity on, you would find a little bit more difference on like exactly how big should the welfare state be or exactly how much, what, what should the government do on healthcare? You'll find people who are wanting a little bit more government intervention or maybe not quite as much. You might see a little bit more differences there. They'd still be grouped in the same neighborhood, but you might see people who have more preference towards one plan or another. Again, glad to have the chance to listen to you and to hear where you're coming from. And I think an important development in our political spectrum. Anything else you want to say? Thank you for having me on. I had a really good time. Thank you.
That was Jeremiah Johnson. He is at cnliberalism.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.